Hello, my name is Conrad Kinch and this is Send 3 and 4 pence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books and the law as we shamble hopefully towards eternity. A scrimmage in a border station, a canter down some dark defile, 2,000 pounds of education drops to a 10 rupee jazile. Strike hard who cares, shoot straight who can, the odds are on. The Cheaper Man, The Arithmetic on the Frontier, by Rudyard Kipling. Um, It's probably no secret to wargamers that the subject of point systems is a slippery one. And uh, it's one that has has sort of come up on multiple occasions. And uh, uh, this comes to mind because Alex from Storm of Steel um, mentioned it. And I've sort of made my own thoughts on this uh, relatively clear in previous pieces for for battle games and miniature war games. But I've just decided to revisit it here because people have been talking about it um, on Send 3 and 4 pence. My preferred wargaming poison is the Command & Colour series of games. Um, which come with a, a variety of scenarios. Uh, to be honest, points aren't usually something I use in a practical wargaming context. However, I do occasionally play The Sword and the Flame or Legends of the Old West, both of which make use of points. Um, also Black Ops, so I'm not as much of a purist as I seem. But um, <sighs> wargamers seem to be split into two main groups on the subject of point systems those who cannot stand them and those that see see them as a perfectly normal part of the hobby there is no doubt a silent majority who don't particularly care but if life has taught me anything at all it's that no one ever notices notices the moderates it's because you know screaming middle ground gradual sustainable change over time doesn't fit really well on a placard um but i'm willing to hear both sides of that argument um I've gathered together the main arguments for both sides and uh, I'd like to present them to you in the form of a court case presented by Mr. Scenario Wargamer uh, BL and Mr. Points Wargamer BL to present each side of the case. The charge reads as follows. Point systems are bad. They have a corrosive effect on wargaming as a hobby and we should stop using them. Presenting the case for the prosecution, Mr. Scenario Wargamer, BL. Gentlemen of the jury, we have before us the subject of point systems. It has been argued that points provide a means for wargamers to quickly and easily draw up an order of battle that will give opponents a fair and balanced game. They also allow players to quickly modify the composition of their army to accommodate different circumstances. Without point systems, tournament play would be virtually impossible as players would be unable to field comparable armies. There are substantial criticisms to this approach, the first amongst them being, how many points did Wellington have at Waterloo? A point system is an artificial construct which allows players to create supposedly balanced battles that never existed in history. Professional soldiers spend their entire careers trying to engineer battles that are over before they begin because the weaker side realises that they have no chance of success. 
battles as they exist on the tabletop only really occur when someone has miscalculated and both sides fight it out because they think there is a reasonable chance of achieving their goals. Only an idiot picks a fair fight when the alternative is an option. So to answer the question of how many points Wellington had at Waterloo is broadly speaking as many as he thought he could get. So a system that relies on points rather than scenarios to create its battles is using a system designed to replicate the balance of forces, i.e. a fair fight that is least likely to occur. Secondly, tigers and bisons and panthers, oh my! The other problem with point systems is that each unit is costed in isolation and nothing is taken in context. I think every wargamer has seen the classic Second World War tournament wargamers army, which is made up of nothing but very expensive and very rare German super tanks, accompanied by panzer grenadiers armed with nothing but Sturmgewehr assault rifles with infrared sights and more MG42s than God himself has ever seen. This is a bit of a caricature, but there is a constituency that really enjoy that sort of thing. All the kit mentioned existed historically, but was rarely as effective in reality as its performance on the wargames table would suggest, for reasons entirely divorced from the hardware. A German unit that was able to feel that sort of kit would also have to contend with total allied air superiority, poorly trained crews, substantial logistics issues and the mechanical unreliability of tanks operating without a proper train of technicians and repairmen. The Napoleonic equivalent is, of course, the All-Imperial Guard Army. I'm sure each period has its super-elite army of immortal super-soldiers. Point systems allow players to create super armies that never existed on the field by cramming elite units onto the table with a total disregard for how they operated in reality. Furthermore, the next charge, lack of context. The warrior philosopher Xenophon once wrote that one man is much like another, but best is he raised in a hard school. At the Battle of Rourke's Drift, there were two armies, the British Army and the Zulu Army. The British Army mustered about 150 men, the Zulus several thousand. Each British soldier was armed with a Martini Henry rifle. The Zulus carried spears and shields. Now, as it happened, the Zulu Army possessed a number of rifles as well. In fact, there's every reason to believe that they could have mustered 150 firearms in the attack on Rourke's Drift. A point system which rates a Martini Henry as a five-point weapon will not distinguish between one in the hands of a Redcoat and one's in the, one in the hands of a Zulu. However, in the context of Rourke's Drift, the Redcoat will be far more devastating. Zulu riflemen, even when they had weapons that were equal to the Martini Henry, did uh, not get anything like the same performance from them because they lacked the training and the practice required to cultivate good marksmanship to say nothing of access to quality ammunition. Um, Colonel Mike Snook has written at length on this subject and I would uh, recommend his works to anybody with an interest in the period. But to return to the point, a wargamer who spends five points on a rifle for his British soldier is going to get a much better bargain for his points uh, than one 
who spends those five points on giving a rifle to his Zulu soldier, which hardly seems fair, and is in fairness what point systems are supposed to be about. To our next uh, point, this is hardly old school wargaming, is it? Point systems are hardly ever used in historical wargaming based on actual battles. Legends of the Old West, the Alamo being the only exception that springs to mind at present, but are more generally used for historically inspired games that use real armies, but that don't refight actual battles. But isn't researching battles and refighting them what wargaming is meant to be about? If we can just make up whatever battles we like, aren't we essentially just playing a game with no real ties to history whatsoever? Tournament wargaming brings out the worst in wargamers. Ahistorical matchups, Aztecs versus Normans, for example, hard fisted rules lawyering, and on occasion outright cheating. They are hardly conducive to the kind of gentlemanly game rooted in history and research that old school wargaming is meant to exemplify. Now, not all wargamers are old school wargamers, but those that are should probably reconsider their position. Also, point systems are broken. The argument for point systems is that they provide a balanced game. They allow a player to create an army that can take on a variety of opponents and be assured that even if he doesn't know who those opponents are, if they both come to the table with the same number of points, that there is a reasonable expectation that each side will have a fair shot. The problem with this assertion is that it is a complete myth. A lot of the criticisms Criticisms outlined above can be countered by pointing out that with well-balanced army lists, the wargamer can avoid most of the pitfalls described. However, any point system is going to have those sweet spots where a unit is undercosted. Serious tournament wargamers, particularly in the fantasy and science fiction fields, look for those sweet spots and exploit them ruthlessly in order to build the most efficient army. What emerges is a constant arms race where army list writers have to juggle and recost units in light of tournament performance. And I'm aware of at least one instance where a rules writer working for a large wargames company actually increased the capabilities of a figure because he discovered that the models cost about nine quid each and the minimum unit size was five models. This necessitated changing the points cost, which affected the rest of the army, which in return led to a lot more work. With the best will in the world, no rules writer is going to be able to examine all the permutations of an army list. No less a veteran games designer than Steve Jackson discovered that when he produced Ogre, that he had inadvertently allowed an unbeatable strategy to slip through the net. He describes the process of discovery and how he dealt with that problem in an article in the Ogre book, which is a, a strategy um, guide for the uh, board wargame Ogre. It would be interesting to note that this was a commercially released wargame designed by a veteran designer who had conducted extensive playtesting and which only included one scenario. There are circumstances which would have made it possible to tune the balance of the game to a fine point, but even still, an unbeatable strategy was missed. It seemed, seems unlikely that a more typical game which would have a wider variety of moving parts, like, for example, Warhammer Ancient Battles or Flames of War, would not be even harder to legislate for. To conclude, point systems offer a superficially attractive but ultimately illusionary fairness to the wargamer. 
fair fights almost never existed in the history of conflict outside the boxing ring and the dueling field. By virtue of their flawed nature, points systems offer up a happy hunting ground to the rules lawyer and the wargamer who wants to win the battle before the figures even hit the table. So, if point systems were created to allow balanced games and they cannot do that, wouldn't it be better to simply abandon the pretense that they do and go back to fighting scenario or historically based battles? These may be unfair, but at least they acknowledge that fact and their unfairness is not the result of poor armyless drafting. Point systems are unhistorical, a break from the gentlemanly traditions of the hobby and fail at their supposed purpose. I would respectfully suggest that we are better off without them. So let us now start with the case for the defence by Mr. Points, Wargamer BL. My learned friend, Mr. Scenario, Wargamer BL, has made some trenchant and well-made points, and they are not entirely without merit. However, I would argue that they do not support the charge that we would be better off as a hobby without point systems. Uh, first, dealing with the... Uh, the, the charge of not being proper old-school wargaming. There are two fundamental flaws in this argument. Firstly, is the contention that point systems are antith antithetical to old school, the old-school wargaming ethos. And secondly, that being old-school is somehow desirable in and of itself. There is little to recommend the idea that being old-school is a worthy goal in and of itself. There are certain reasons as to why the old school approach is attractive, the focus on simple rules, a gentlemanly approach to gamesmanship and using older figures. However, one can certainly do most of these things without being an old school wargamer. Many Warhammer tournament players are perfect gentlemen, and I've seen wargamers playing Blucher and Lion Rampant with figures made in the 1970s. G.K. Chesterton wrote that my country, right or wrong, is a thing that no patriot would think of saying except in a desperate case. It's like saying, my mother, drunk or sober. For the same reason, using older rules like charge, for example, because you like them, is an excellent idea. Using them simply because they are old in an, and that that is in and of itself a virtue is ridiculous. But disregarding the question of whether being old school, old school is in itself a virtue, the contention that point systems are somehow antithetical to that approach is simply untrue. In fact, there are point systems present in H.G. Wells' Little Wars, published in 1913. Quote, Each player then selected his force from the available soldiers in this way. He counted infantry as one point each, cavalry as one and a half points, and guns as ten. And taking whatever he liked in whatever position he liked, he made up a total of 150 points. End quote. But if H.G. Wells' old school credentials are not gold-plated enough for you, surely Charles Grant Sr., author of The War Game, is worthy of consideration. That estimable book makes use of a point system for recruiting on page 171. And if that isn't enough to dispose of the idea the point systems aren't old school, I don't know what will be. The next point is that point systems are unhistorical. A second and to my mind, far more worthy argument against point systems is that they're unhistorical. On the surface, this appears to be an unassailable argument. Barring a couple of very odd situations, there was almost never a circumstance where both sides decided that they were going to have a fair fight and selected their forces accordingly. However, it does fall foul of two points that seem fairly obvious on the face of it. How many points did the Duke have at Waterloo? 
Well, I can't tell you that exactly. In fact, it is unlikely that he could have done so exactly, but he could probably give you a rough idea. At Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington led an army of about 25,000 British soldiers, plus about 6,000 King's German Legion. In Napoleon's campaigns in miniature, Bruce Quarry, uh, the author, examines the cost of recruiting an infantry soldier. He goes into this topic in some considerable detail, but here are the figures for a single British redcoat. Prices are quoted are in pounds, shillings and pence. For necessaries, three pounds and 15 shillings. For uniform, four pounds. For musket, one pound, 16 shillings, 10 and a half pence. Bayonet, socket, one shilling and sevenpence. Bayonet scabbard, eight shillings, uh, sorry, eight and one uh, quarter pence. And so on. In the heel of the hunt, the total comes to about a tenner. Campaign equipment came to about another fiver, including shoes, knapsack, pipe, clay, and so forth. And then, of course, one must take into account the bounty of five pounds, five, sorry, eight pounds, five shillings, four pounds, four shillings of which to the recruiting sergeant, one pound, eight shillings for four weeks' pay during training, and 19 shillings, seven pence for food during training. Though one might reduce the two shillings, eight pence for drink in that figure if our putative Johnny Raw has his liquor stopped for misbehaviour during training. But assuming an uncharacteristically well-behaved soldiery, this total comes to about £29, 16 shillings and 7 pence. There are almost certainly problems with this figure, as it represents a notional cost per soldier and doesn't include the cost of pay, transport or supply, but it does demonstrate that one can put a numerical value on what one British soldier cost to recruit and train in the early 19th century. With that in mind, disregarding the additional considerable expense of cavalry training, horses, baggage, the purchase of cannon and other regrettable necessities, the Duke's army of 25,000 British soldiers certainly did not cost less than seven, uh, 745 thousand pounds, 729 pounds, three shillings and fourpence. In 1815, there was probably a very clever fellow in Whitehall, who had those figures at his inky fingertips. And curiously enough, most wargamers are rather more interested in playing the role of the dashing duke rather than the unglamorous but necessary clerk. I exaggerate somewhat for comedic effect, but the point is this. Since the advent of civilization, soldiers have had to be bought and paid for. Whether that is the red coat standing in a muddy field somewhere in Belgium at the cost of nearly 30 quid to the crown, or a 17th century Hatamo on his 300 cuckoo a year supplying a single samurai, a spearman, and so on. Someone, probably not the general command in command, has had to have been able to balance the books and work out how many men could be brought to the field. Points merely represent an easier way of accomplishing this complicated task without having to resort to pounds, shillings and pence, revolutionary assignats or groats or what have you. Secondly, and without putting too fine a point on it, the clue is in the name. War Game. Wargamers who use points are simply using an expedient means to arrange a battle. Points are simply a shortcut to allow these players to arrange their game. Very few wargames rules take account of the effect of black powder smoke or the effect of disease on a campaigning army or have in-depth rules for weather. There are surely very important factors 
These are very important factors for generals to consider. Napoleon delayed his attack at Waterloo in order to allow the ground to dry out. I've rarely seen this as anything other than a scenario-specific special rule. But surely, if we are as concerned about historical rigour as we claim to be, this sort of thing should be foremost in our mind. But the truth of it is that it isn't. For the same reason that miniature armies frequently go into battle in parade ground uniforms, and why Second World War games disproportionately focus on infantry and tank engagements while playing precious little attention to artillery, the real killer on the mid-20th century battlefield. The infantry in the armour battles make for better games, parade ground soldiers look amazing, and there's surely nothing to be ashamed of in either of those things. Point systems make organising a game easier. They allow players a shorthand for selecting forces, which is extremely useful when planning a club game or tournament. The player who is selecting from the army list or codex or what have you has limited options, and his opponent knows how limited those options are. The army lists may be balanced or not, but each player knows within reason the limit of what is possible. This may be unhistorical, but surely no more unhistorical than playing a historical scenario where both players know the background, the order of battle and the outcome intimately. Riel would have had a much easier time at Quatre Bras if he'd known how few Allied troops were opposing him. However, the player filling Riel's boots almost certainly knows the exact dispositions of the Allied forces as well as the outcome of the battle before the game even starts. War games based on historical scenarios are often excellent and I enjoy them as much as the next man. However, to pretend that they are somehow more historical than games fought using point systems seems a stretch. No wargamer worth his salt will be so ignorant of the Battle of Cannae that he will replicate the mistakes made by Varro. Does that not make a nonsense of the claim to be recreating history? Points are a game mechanic, like bound sticks, variable, uh, variable movement distance or written orders. It is possible to use them for good or ill, and a game mechanic itself is not bad. The fact remains that it is possible to play a reasonably historical game if you accept that playing a scenario that could have occurred as historical using a point system. It is possible that you don't consider those uh, that do so to be real wargamers, and that is your prerogative. But consider this, if anyone who doesn't play historically based scenarios isn't a real wargamer, that would seem to exclude a lot of players from the wargaming fraternity. It instantly excludes those who use point systems, those who play imagi uh, imaginary countries like, for example, Charles Grant Sr. and Brigadier Peter Young, those who play science fiction games like Rick Priestley, those who play fantasy games like Tony Bat's Hyboria games, or Jervis Johnson and every other Warhammer fantasy battle player. This may leave you a bit like the sole member of the popular Front of Judea in the life of Brian, splendid in your ideologically pure isolation, but running a bit short on opponents with whom to actually play games. Still, it's better than playing with that bunch of splitters, right? Another argument against point systems is that they lead to the creation of elite armies. There is plenty of historical evidence for large historical elite, uh, sorry, large elite formations being deployed en masse on the battlefield. From the Persian immortals to Napoleon's imperial guard, rulers have always ha had a role for large formations of picked troops. Noted wargamer Brigadier Peter Young, DSO, MC, two bars, was second in command and was for a while officer commanding three commando brigade, an entire brigade of elite troops which fought in Burma in 1944. 
Three Commando uh, Brigade would again be deployed en masse in the Falkland Islands in 1980. Most Second World War gamers rarely command more than a brigade's worth of troops plus some support, so the idea of fielding an elite formation is not ridiculous. 2nd SS Panzer Division Das Reich was an entire division of highly motivated and very well-equipped troops. Arguably, Napoleon's Imperial Guard was a small corps at its height. At the scale of battle most wargamers play, which is usually somewhere between a brigade and a division aside, there isn't really much historical basis for criticising the all-elite army. What does create problems is that most wargamers play one-off battles rather than campaigns, so the major problems of an all-elite army are avoided, which are political capital and reinforcements. If the elite troops are key to the legitimacy of the state, like, for example, Napoleon's Imperial Guard or the Persian Immortals, their losses disproportionately affect the regime, which has meant that traditionally states are reluctant to commit elite troops with the same sort of gay abandoned beloved of wargamers. Secondly, attrition is a problem in any conflict and raising crack troops takes time. Consequently, raising a corps of elite soldiers isn't that difficult. What is difficult is maintaining them in the field when casualties, disease and attrition take their toll. Being an elite corps is easy. Staying an elite corps is very hard indeed. With that in mind, it seems silly to accuse point systems of fostering the culture of the uber army when wargamers play the kinds of games that makes it perfectly sensible to feel them. If one never has to worry about having to fight tomorrow or maintaining supply lines or doing any of the other myriad tasks real armies have to do, only fielding the best soldiers one can makes perfect sense. But that's hardly the fault of point systems, is it? In conclusion, I would argue that my learned friend has made some compelling arguments against point systems, but what he is really describing is the misuse of point systems, as a game mechanic point systems facilitate play for wargamers who don't play historical games. They make tournaments easier to organise and introduce a new wrinkle into gameplay. Wargamers who use point systems are often accused of building super armies that never existed in history, but surely those players are examining the army list that they are presented with, considering the number of points they have to spend, and making rational decisions about how to proceed. The wargamer is using the tools he is presented with as best he can to win the game. That surely is no different from a player writing clear and concise orders in a game that uses written orders, or counting cards in a game that uses card activation. If a designer wishes to avoid that sort of thing, he should structure his army lists accordingly. And many game, designer, game designers, Warwick Kincaid and the boys behind the Battle Group series of games spring to mind here, spend hundreds of hours doing so. They often have an extremely detailed and close knowledge of the period they're writing about and use that knowledge to ease the learning curve for others. Army list writing is a skill and some are better at it than others, but decrying point systems altogether for the reasons outlined by my learned friend seems to be me to be throwing the eminently serviceable baby, that is point systems, out with the occasionally suspect and the, the abuse thereof bathwater. In conclusion... I don't generally use point systems in my games. My wargaming is almost 
entirely scenario based usually command and colors napoleonics memoir 44 and so on i've rarely enjoyed those tournaments that i've played in and i've had games wrecked by players abusing uh, loopholes in a chosen chosen point system but fundamentally fundamentally those problems are with the players using the systems rather than the system itself poorly together points put together point systems certainly didn't help but on the whole the problem lay with those using the system Point systems have a problem of context. A rifle is worth more in the hands of a skilled marksman. A few men in the right place can be worth a division in the wrong place and is probably beyond the wit of mortal rune designers to come up with a system that is completely foolproof, mainly because we keep breeding such a bountiful crop of industrious and ingenious fools. But that said, some designers have done fantastic work, both in building robust, robust and flexible systems, finely tuned to the needs of players and the context in which those games are played. Privateer Press's Iron Kingdoms and the Battlegroup Kursk and Normandy etc. games being clearly exa- clear examples of some very thoughtful game design. I began... When I began looking into the pros and cons of point systems, what surprised me most about the debate was how inflammatory it was. I was not, and I am not, taken with point systems as a game mechanic, but there is a mean intellect and a poor spirit that holds. This thing is not to my taste, and I do not enjoy it. Therefore, no one else should enjoy it, and if they do claim to enjoy it, they are either lying or a fool. Those who use point systems still push toy soldiers around a miniature battlefield and rejoice in the common name of Wargamer, and I think it behooves those of us who do not care for that particular strand of Wargaming to be at least courteous in our disagreement. That which we have in common is far greater than that which divides us. Even if you despise point systems as a mechanic, you are unlikely to convert someone to your point of view by insulting them. Calling someone a fool or deriding their knowledge of history as being less than your own feels good. Doing so in the increasingly networked and anonymous internet age is both easy and normally free of consequences. It does not enrich the hobby, nor does it promote the gentlemanly and friendly atmosphere atmosphere that is usually the hallmark of the wargaming group. At the beginning of this presentation, I stated the following. Point systems are bad. Uh, they have a corrosive uh, effect on the ho- on wargaming as a hobby, and we should stop using them. Having considered the evidence, I do not think Mr. Scenario Wargamer BL has proved the case for the prosecution on those facts. Some wargamers really enjoy games with points values, and they are producing some top-notch stuff. But ultimately, the verdict will be up to you, who will play the kind of games that you want to play with, with or without point systems, and help the hobby that we all love to grow and flourish into the 21st century. Um... If you uh, want to, uh, to disagree with my assessment, um, my email address is conrad.kinch at gmail.com or you can leave me a message on Anchor. Um, all I ask is that if you do so, please do so courteously. To use a line misattributed to Henry Kissinger, university politics are so vicious because the stakes are so, so small. And that would appear to be the case here. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Conrad Kinch and this is Send Three and Four Fourpence. And to all, a good night. Thank you.
You have been listening to Send Three and Fourpence, a semi-regular podcast about gaming, books and the law. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, like and subscribe, and most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. And if you didn't like this podcast, please like, share and subscribe, and most importantly, tell your friends that you liked it. Thank you and goodbye.